Open your Bibles with me, if you will, to 2 Timothy, 2 Timothy chapter 4. Biblical exhortation is a subject that, I don't know about you, but I have never heard a message given on, a specific message given just on that subject. I hope if you're in that same category that today you can reap the benefits of what the Word of God has to say about this all-important subject. Look at 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. Read them along with me as I read to you. I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. Matthew chapter 18. You can flip over there if you'd like. Matthew chapter 18, verse 15. And if your brother sins... Go and reprove him in private. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. Galatians chapter 6. Galatians chapter 6 verse 1. Brethren, if a man is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one. In a spirit of gentleness, each one looking to yourself, lest you too be tempted. Father, thank you for this opportunity to look at your word one more time. I pray that it would not just be something we do casually, something we do just with our minds, but that with whole hearts we come and look and see what the Word of God has to say to change our lives. God, I know how important this subject is, especially on a Christian college campus where we spend so much time with Christian brothers and sisters. I pray that you would bless our time looking at your Word today. It's in your name we pray. Amen. It was a beautiful summer day. One of the prettiest days that you could possibly imagine on a summer, a clear summer day in the San Fernando Valley, which is a rare instance many times. And we were at the pool, a beautiful Olympic-sized swimming pool at Valley College, which some of you know is in North Hollywood area in the San Fernando Valley. And uh, I was working that summer as a day camp counselor. And there were quite a few counselors, and we took care of kids at a day camp. And we did all sorts of activities. We went to Magic Mountain, and we went to Disneyland. And on every Tuesday and Thursday, we went to the pool. So it was a pretty common thing for us to do. And as we were there, we were doing the typical thing. Some of the counselors were in the pool swimming, and some were playing with the children. Those that don't like children usually throw them in the pool instead of playing with them. And some were sitting on the, up on the deck or on the chairs and rubbing themselves with suntan lotion, and some were reading books. Just the typical kind of thing. And I'll never forget what I was doing. I was propped up against the side of the pool, kind of like you know how you hang on to the side of the pool and kicking my legs or something, just waiting there. And all of a sudden, I heard some funny noises behind me. So I, as I was turning around, I, I heard some struggling and just kind of, help it, help, help. And I looked and, and there was a kid kind of kicking his legs and doing something under the water. You couldn't really tell what he was doing. And as I looked, he was trying to help a kid that was below him under the water. And obviously, you know, the signals go on in your head. Something's wrong. It's not right. Let's help him. As he was yelling, help, some of the other counselors heard and they dived in over my head and they got the kid to the side of the pool. And I remember walking over there, and as we were dragging him out of the pool, I remember watching the counselors. They could barely lift him up. About a nine-year-old boy, you know, no higher than that, trying to lift him out of the pool. And he was so heavy, so filled with water, they could barely lift him out. They finally dragged him up on the side, and they laid him down. And I'll never forget, and the first thought that came to my mind is, is he from our camp? Is he one of our kids, or is he from another day camp? Because I didn't recognize him. It happened to be one of the kids I knew very well, but I didn't recognize him because his face was completely purple, his lips were swollen, and basically he was drowned. As um, the counselors dragged him up, they, they you know, yelled for the lifeguard, and the lifeguard ran over as quick as he could and began to work with CPR and mouth-to-mouth resuscitation. And 
jumped on him and started giving to him and, you know, hitting his chest. And I remember him working for about 30 seconds. He, he put his ear down by the child's chest and screamed, no, no, don't, no, don't lose it. And he was ups- and he, it was obvious what had just happened. The child had just died. And as we stood there in utter amazement, watching the lifeguard continue to administer CPR and mouth to mouth, we were in complete shock, out of our control. And we watched it happen, and luckily the lifeguard was able to restore him, and he began to, to vomit up the water and some blood and some mucus, and he rolled over in intense pain. And he brought him back to life. He was, you know, dead. His heart had stopped. And as we stood there, we realized, what if we hadn't been right there by the pool? How a short instant of time could have made such a difference? What if that kid had just dropped him accidentally? Or what if the counselors had been far away and hadn't heard? When someone needs help and when someone is in danger, what do you do? You don't wait around. You rush as quickly as you can to the situation, right? You rush there and you drag him out of the pool. Someone who is in sin is living in danger and many times needs the help of another believer to rescue him. My concern is a very deep one for the school here and many of you. That I would hope many of you aren't drowning while others are busy enjoying how beautiful the pool is that day or so busy just rubbing the suntan lotion on themselves and trying to achieve the ultimate tan for the summer or engrossed in a book or maybe practicing your backstroke while there's someone drowning in the center of the pool. I know what it's like. Uh, I went here for three years, as Russ mentioned, and I'm very aware of the Christian college atmosphere and the setting here. And I'll never forget my first experience with what I would consider very harsh and blunt sin on a Christian college campus. Uh, as we were going along, I believe it was in my sophomore year, which was my first year here. And uh, there was a friend who hung around a group, myself and a couple of my other friends, and was just a, a fairly nice guy. You never would have really guessed anything. But I didn't feel really good. Something about him really bothered me. And uh, he used to give... The, my, the guys and my other friends a hug every time we leave and I would look at that and it, it just it bothered me well it happened just to make a long story short a couple weeks later him and from what I understand a couple other young men were expelled from school for homosexuality it's a pretty amazing thing to think about that on a Christian yes it does happen to us Christians too I know there's in the dorms it's not a new issue I'm sure most of you have heard about it there's drinking people come in drunk rampant sin there's people sleeping with other people. Yeah, it's sex. Premarital sex, sex outside of marriage on the Christian college campus. Prostituting what the Christian college was meant to do. And I was hurt because I know that I, when I was here, was never asked by anyone how my walk with God was, let alone if there was sin in my life. And that makes me very concerned that maybe we don't speak up enough. Maybe we're not quite as concerned about each other as we should be. With the definition of sin today in the church, it's in some way understandable why this is happening. The definition of sin, sin has been so diluted over the past several years, it's sickening. It should make you sick to your stomach. What you hear is the common definition of sin. It's not popular to talk about sin in churches, as most of you know. Many of you have come from churches, I know, and I'm sure, have come from churches where your pastors don't often preach about sin because it's not a popular subject. It's not a fun thing to talk about. And it also doesn't bring the money in usually. It gets people mad at you. So they don't talk about it. Several years back, I'll never forget receiving in the mail a book. Robert Schuller, who all of you know his name, sent out a book, Self-Esteem, The New Reformation. And he sent it out to thousands of pastors all across the nation. And I got one, and I wasn't even a pastor. And I was trying to figure out why I got one. 
And the book throughout is Robert Schuller's definition of self-esteem and basically his whole ministry. And it's that he's the most watched TV evangelist, the most watched TV preacher of everyone. That man has an incredible influence. And this book was sponsored by a very rich man and sent this book out to thousands of pastors across the nation. Let me just read you some of his definitions of sin. And I know I'm sure many of your pastors from your churches at home have probably read the book. And not necessarily that they're teaching those things. But this influence of sin constantly being diluted as so come into the church, it's affecting us everywhere He says this about sin. Any human condition or act that robs God of glory by stripping one of his children of their right to divine dignity. That's sin in his definition. Sin is that deep lack of trust that separates me from God and leaves me with a sense of shame and unworthiness. Is it? Sin is any act or thought that robs myself or another human being of his or her self-esteem. In the church or basically among the Christian body, Christian believers, sin is confronted in three ways, really quickly. Sin is confronted, the number one way, would be the ministry of the Word of God. As you're in church on Sunday, Sunday morning, Sunday nights, possibly Wednesdays, as you sit here in chapel, it's confronted by the ministry of the Word of God. All sorts of sins are addressed all throughout the Bible, and you know what those are. Ephesians 5, 25 to 27, makes reference to that. as It talks about uh, the relationship between a husband and wife, and uh, Jesus and the bride of Christ, how he has washed her with the water of the word. Jesus has washed the church. Also, Titus 1.9 makes reference to that. Secondly, the ministry of the Holy Spirit. The ministry of the Holy Spirit. In Romans 1.4, the Holy Spirit is called the spirit of holiness. In Nehemiah 9, verse 30, it talks about being admonished by the spirit. The ministry of the word, the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And the third way sin is confronted is by the ministry of people. And that's what I'm here to talk to you about today, how sin is confronted through the ministry of people. That means you and me. What are some reasons we don't confront sin? Maybe a better word than reasons would be excuses. What are some excuses that we come up with that keep us from confronting the sin that is so prevalent among us? These are the ones that I thought of. I'm sure there are many more, but these are the ones that came to my mind as I sat down and I knew the ones that have kept me from confronting sin and possibly the ones that have, confront, have kept you from confronting sin. Number one, fear of what others might think. I'm scared to confront someone because what if someone sees me do that and, and misunderstands and I might lose a friend or, or what about fear of what the other person might think, the person you're confronting? What about that? I might lose a friend. They might misunderstand. People will tell everybody that I'm a, I'm a cop and I think on everybody and fear. Well, the Bible tells us we're not to fear men, we're to fear God. It's not a very good excuse. Secondly, sin in our own lives is an excuse Sin in our own lives. Obviously, you know as well as I do that if there's sin in your life, you cannot go to another believer and confront sin in their life. That is sin that's unconfessed sin. It gives you this feeling of being unqualified. But you should know and distinguish between us that if you have no unconfessed sin in your life, even though we do sin, but there's no unconfessed sin in your life, you shouldn't feel unqualified because we are children of God. And if everyone, we are all unqualified, then, and then nobody could ever minister to anyone else because we all have sin in our lives. It's like being unqualified as a lifeguard and not trying to say, well, I can't save him. I'm not a lifeguard. I don't know how to do CPR. I don't know how to do mouth-to-mouth resuscitation. I can't drag him out of the pool. See the parallel there? Number three, thinking someone else will do it. Thinking someone else will do it. Well, it's such a hard thing and it'd be so much... I know, he's got friends that are closer to him and I'm sure other people see it. Someone else will do it. Will they? 
Will someone else do it? I know, especially here, it's so easy because you got, in a sense, what you got your campus cops. In the dorms, you've got RAs. Well, the RA will do it. It's his responsibility. It's her responsibility, right? Then you don't have to do it. And we take the responsibility off ourselves, place it on another person, and we don't have to worry about it anymore. And then we don't have to feel guilty about it. Not true. It's an excuse. Really, if it was the biblical pattern, we would could do away with all of the RAs and all the RDs because everyone would be doing that job and there wouldn't have to be someone officially in that position to do it. Number four, saying, well, if they're in sin, it is their responsibility. It's their responsibility. They're, they're the ones, they, they know as much as I do about the Bible. They're accountable before God. They're going to stand before God. It's their responsibility. You know what? That's true. It is their responsibility. But, well, let me try to illustrate that for you. Uh, when I was uh, still living at home one morning, I was sleeping in bed and uh, my mom came into my room like she did frequently and opened the curtains and looked out. And we lived right next to a private school, Pinecrest School. And uh, she looked out the window and they were, they were doing some building and they had one of those builders, you know, those trailers that they set up on building sites. And there was a trailer pretty within a close uh, radius of my window. And she looked out the window where the trailer normally was. And she looked in and she said, something was strange. She goes, hmm, it looks like there's... Something, there's, there's fire and I can see some fire in the window and she goes, hey Mike, come here, there's some fire in the window and, and it, you begin to realize it's not just, uh, you know, they're not cooking coffee anymore but uh, there was actually a fire in the window so I, I jumped out of bed and I looked and sure enough there was a blaze basically coming out the window and the window was broken so I threw my shoes on and I'm running outside in my sweats and I don't know what's going on and I run over to the campus as quick as I can and I'm looking and I run into the cafeteria and I, I was so startled I didn't know what to say. Did you know there's a fire out there? And they're sitting and obviously they didn't, they didn't know there was a fire out there. But we got up and I ran out there and luckily they called the fire department and the fire was put out. What if I just laid in bed and instead of going out to try to stop the fire, I said, well, it's on their property. It's not my responsibility. It's just no skin off my back. It's not my trailer. Not my school. Who cares? What would have happened? Possibly that would have burned down. But not only that, the buildings around it would have burned down and it becomes many other people's responsibilities also. Another question. What types of things necessitate confrontation? Right now, let me just give you a biblical example. Real simply out of the book of 1 Corinthians. As you know, Paul wrote to the Corinthians about many different issues that were sin in the church. Just to run through them really quickly, in chapter 1, Paul wrote to them about division that existed in the body. Lack of unity, division, they were following different people, they weren't unified in any of their things. It was just a mess. It was a confused mess. Chapter 3 of 1 Corinthians, fleshliness, carnality, acting like the world, not dealing with your sin like you should. Chapter 5, immorality. In that specific case, there was incest. Someone was sleeping with their stepmother. In our specific instance, it could be anything. Sex outside of marriage. Chapter 6, lawsuits. Christians were suing other Christians and going before pagans. And what kind of example does that set? Chapter 7, marriage. He exhorted them on the subject of marriage. And basically the responsibility to one's partner and fulfilling that responsibility to not deprive yourself from them. Selfishness in a relationship, possibly. Chapter 8 of 1 Corinthians, use or abuse of Christian liberty. And as you know, that's a pretty popular subject around here, Christian college campus, Christian liberty. Uh, it comes... The, runs the gamut of all different subjects, drinking and dancing, and the subject goes on and on, but it's not the use, it's the abuse of it and how often it is abused. First Corinthians chapter 11, the role of women in the church. 
Women going outside their authority and going outside of the things they should be doing. Also in chapter 11, the abuse of the Lord's Supper. People were coming to the Lord's table, one, with their lives full of sin, and then they were coming and selfishly keeping all the things for themselves. They would bring their food. Now, it was actually a meal back at that time, and there were poor people coming, and they weren't sharing it with them, and the Lord's table was a mess also. Chapters 12 to 14, the misuse of spiritual gifts. Uh, the abuse of spiritual gifts, the, the gift of tongues is dealt with so greatly there and how that was abused in the church. All these things, Paul went one at a time and exhorted the Corinthians on all these subjects. What are some ones that are examples today that if Paul were to write a letter to the church today or if Paul were to write a letter to the master's college, what about pride? Here we are in one of the most excellent Christian colleges in the nation. What about materialism being Americans and Specifically living in upper to upper, upper middle class, middle class families that have plenty of money, plenty of income. You know, they just buy their son a car when, they, when he's 16 and they drive around in Mercedes. And we really don't have any concept of what the rest of the world is like. And Christians stay materialistic. What about obesity? I don't know if I've ever known of anyone who's been confronted on that sin. That's a hard thing. It can be a sin. Apathy. Just whatever, the whatever attitude toward life. I, I'll be a Christian, it's for me, and I'm content, and apathy. That should be confronted today. The list goes on and on. Make your own list. Those are just a few samples out of it. Just as a footnote, this is so important. Russ mentioned when he came up here about the word confront. Uh, because it's a concept that's foreign to so many people, it's important to understand what that actually means. What is to confront? What does that mean? What is confrontation? And as Russ mentioned, it's never used in the Bible of a believer confronting another believer. And that was interesting. It's an interesting thing to discover. It's never used, the word confront. Basically, confrontation then is just a definition of, it's a face-to-face meeting. It's going to someone face-to-face and bringing up an issue that needs to be dealt with. The Greek word is parakaleo, and it has a wide range of meanings. And this is really special to me. Uh, the more biblical terms would be to admonish, to reprove, to exhort, though some of the words we read in, in Timothy, even to encourage and to comfort. Those all come from the same word, to encourage or to comfort. It gives you a little idea about what the attitude should be behind the exhortation as you go. Through the rest of the message, I'm going to uh, jump back and forth between the use of confrontation or exhortation. Basically, I'm referring to the same thing, and that is what biblical exhortation is meant to be. Is approaching a Christian brother or sister about a specific sin in their life. Let me give you 15 principles quickly that God has taught me. And I never believed that God could teach these to me in such a real way. But the last six months, God has time and time again brought it out of my life where I had to go to his word. I was just drawn to it where I had to find out what he has to say about it. And I would just wish that I had known the things that I know now from the word of God. When I had to deal with some of these situations, take note of what they are with me. Number one, do not exhort or judge those outside the church. Emphasis on the word outside. Do not exhort or judge those outside the church. First Corinthians chapter five. Turn there with me and read one of the things Paul wrote to the Corinthians in the midst of his exhortations to them. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 12 and 13. Paul says, For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Do you not judge those who are, what, within the church? But those who are outside, God judges. Remove the wicked man from among yourselves. 
It is useless confronting an unsaved person about specific sins until they have them all forgiven by Christ, isn't it? They can't take care of those sins anyway. So it's useless to go to an unbeliever and confront something in their life when there's a deeper heart issue. Christ needs to come in and change that person's life and forgive them of their sins. Then the specific ones can be dealt with one at a time as those come up. Note, though, if an unsaved person is important, if an unsaved person is within the church, if they're a regular attender, this could apply to the college setting if they're at a Christian college and have, have written a testimony and signed their name and they are professing to be Christians. They fall under the jurisdiction of the church. They are claiming to be Christians. We might not know if they are or not. God knows. Then it is appropriate to go and confront that person because we don't know if they're saved or not. So if they're in the church context setting. You can go to them and confront them. Number two, all exhortation, all Exhortation is based on the purity and holiness of God's church and God's people. First Peter chapter one, verses 14 to 16 says this as obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts, which were yours in your ignorance, but like the Holy one who called you be holy yourselves in all your behavior, because it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. God said that. You've got to set up some kind of standard to base everything else on. This is the standard that we're basing exhortation on because God said He wants His church and His people holy. If God didn't care, it wouldn't matter if we sinned, right? But God cares. He cares about each one of us. Not just, well, it's 75%. As long as 75% are holy, we're fine. He cares about 100% of you. Number three, confrontation or exhortation is not judging. Confrontation or exhortation is not judging. Say what? What? Matthew chapter 7. Let's see what Matthew chapter 7 says about this. One of the most misinterpreted passages in all the Gospels. Matthew chapter 7, verses 1 to 5. Do not judge lest you be judged. Most people stop right there. Well, I can't go judge. If, if I go and confront sin in someone's life, I've, I've judged them and I've just, now I'm disobedient to the word of God because I've judged, so I better not say anything. Keep myself safe that way. Read on. For in the way you judge, you will be judged. And by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you. And why do you look at the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye and behold, the log is in your own eye. You hypocrite. First, take the log out of your own eye and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. What's he saying? Judging is done with wrong motives. Judging is done hypocritically, isn't it? Note the last verse. First, take the log out of your own eye. Then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. That's the same thing we saw when we talked about sin in our own lives. Basically, it's saying get rid of the sin in your own life. Confess it. Deal with that so you can go to them in purity and confront that sin. Then you can take the log out of your brother's eye. It's not wrong to judge. Even Jesus used the word judging there. Note how he uses the word eye. The eye is probably the most sensitive part of your body, isn't it? How many, I had some in my eye this morning. It bugged me to try to get it out. I remember my, my wife's nephew about six months ago had eye surgery and when he was born he had very weak muscles in his eyes so they tended to go cross-eyed when he was tired and he had eye surgery and I'll never forget looking at his eyes. They, they're like the kind of thing that makes your eyes water when you look at it. You know, there's little stitches in his eyes and you looked and they were totally red and bloodshot. 
the eyes were so sensitive. And just to think about a surgeon taking a knife to his eyeball and fixing the muscles, the fine, delicate muscles inside, that's a sensitivity we need when we go to a brother or sister in Christ. And 1 Corinthians 5.12, as we just read, do, not, do you not judge those who were within the church? The word judge was used there also, Paul used. So judging is not wrong if it's not done, if it's not done hypocritically or with wrong motives. Number four, use the word of God, not your own opinion or experience. Second Timothy chapter three, verses 16 and 17. Let me read these verses to you in a little different light than maybe you've read them before. Second Timothy three, 16 and 17. All scripture is inspired by God. That's what we usually use this verse for, right? To defend the inspiration of scripture and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. I didn't know that was in there. That the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. We usually approach the word of God for our own edification rather than for the reproof or correction of others, don't we? We usually go and we sit down in our quiet time and say, what can I get out of this? Rather than, what can I take to my brother and use in his life? What can I teach them that God has taught me through the Word of God? Exodus chapter 6, verse 28. Important point. The authority that you use when you go to someone to exhort them to use biblical exhortation, the authority comes from God. It's not my authority. Nothing in and of myself do I have that I can come and I have the right to say something about someone else's life. I don't have that kind of right. Exodus chapter 6. Interesting. Look at Exodus 6 verse 28. It says, Now it came about on the day when the Lord spoke to Moses in the land of Egypt, that the Lord spoke to Moses saying, I am the Lord. Speak to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, all that I speak to you. God's sending Moses to Pharaoh. Okay? He's sending him. But Moses said... Before the Lord, behold, I am unskilled in speech. How will I, how will I do this? How will Pharaoh will listen? Will he listen to me? Then the Lord said to Moses, See, I make you as God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. You shall speak all that I command you, and your brother Aaron shall speak to Pharaoh that he let the sons of Israel go out of his land. Is that amazing? He was going to represent God so clearly and distinctly that God says, I make you as God to Pharaoh. When you go, you're going with the authority of God, not your own authority. Remember that. Number five, it is important to distinguish between sin and personal taste, opinion, or preference. Big one. It is important to distinguish between sin and personal taste, opinion, or preference. At the bank that I go to, there, uh, one of the tellers there has a really dark hair. She's a dark complexion girl, and she has very dark hair, almost black. And I'll never forget one day I walked into the blank to the bank, and she must think uh, the blondes have more fun because she went and she bleached her hair. And I don't know if you've ever seen that, someone that had very dark black hair, and then they go and they bleach their hair, and you know what that looks like? Well, what was worse is a couple weeks later when she stopped bleaching it, and then the roots began to grow out, the black roots, and you look, and it looks kind of like an Oreo cookie on her head or something. It was one of the most disgusting things I had ever seen. Personally, I was offended by that. Her hair looked ugly, but was that sin to do that? That was my personal opinion or preference. She might have loved it. Her husband might have loved it. He must have thought it was great. Uh, do dual colored hair or something. 
It offended me, but it wasn't sin. First John 5.17 says, All unrighteousness is sin. Not personal opinion, taste, or preference. Number six, the exhortation should be directed at the sin, not the person. The exhortation should be directed at the sin, not the person. Let me read you 2 Thessalonians 3.15, starting at verse 14. And if anyone does not obey our instruction in this letter, take special note of that man and do not associate with him so that he may be put to shame. And yet, do not regard him as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. Admonish him as a brother. Number seven. Exhortation is for the purpose of, catch it, restoration, not condemnation. Exhortation is for the purpose of restoration, not condemnation. Galatians 6.1, the verse we read at the beginning as I opened up, states it clearly. If any man is caught in a trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one. And in Matthew 18.15, which we also read, is for the purpose of restoration. If he repents, you have won your brother, it says. The word gained there, that's used, the word gained or won, is a word from the commercial world used to talk about the accumulation of wealth. Uh, it pictures a sinning brother as a loss of valuable treasure. Is that a beautiful picture? When someone has gone in sin in their way, they've gone astray, that's not something that you can throw away. It's a loss of a valuable treasure, something you want to get back. We forget it so often. Number eight, the confrontation should be done in a gentle but direct way. The confrontation or exhortation should be done in a gentle but direct way. The sin should be stated and defined without getting into details. Details are usually not necessary. You don't have to get into the gory details of every little sin and aspect. Then you fill your own mind with those things that you don't need to hear. It also prevents misunderstanding and miscommunication with avoiding the unnecessary details. Look at 2 Samuel with me. 2 Samuel chapter 12. I consider this to be one of the most beautiful illustrations in the Bible of biblical exhortation. 2 Samuel chapter 12. King David had been going along and doing a great job at the kingdom and all of a sudden he decided to um, step outside his bounds a little bit and he committed sin. Most of you know, he went out and he saw Bathsheba as she was bathing and he lusted after her and he went and he asked for her and he laid with her. He committed adultery. They had a baby. He had her husband killed because her husband wouldn't come to sleep with her. He couldn't cover up the sin. His sin was increasing and for someone that was a spiritual leader of the nation and a, of the government there, it was incredible sin before God. God wasn't going to let it go unnoticed or unpunished. In 2 Samuel 12, verses 1 to 14, look what happens. Then the Lord sent Nathan. Notice that the Lord sends Nathan. God wanted to deal with that sin. He sent Nathan to David and he came to him and said, and he tells him a story. Follow the story. It's great. There were two men in one city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had a great many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb which he bought and nourished and it grew up together with him and his children and would eat of his bread and drink of his cup and lie in his bosom and was like a daughter to him. Now a traveler came to the rich man and he was unwilling to take from his own flock 
or his own herd to prepare for the wayfarer who had come to him. Rather, he took the poor man's ewe lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. This is great. Verse five. Then David's anger burned greatly against the man. And he said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, surely the man who has done this deserves to die. And he must make restitution for the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and had no compassion. What did he just do? He convicted himself. He convicted himself. Read on. Nathan then said to David, you are the man. Thus says the Lord God of Israel. He convicted himself. And now Nathan uses God's words, not his own. Notice this. Because the Lord said... It is I who anointed you king over Israel, and it is I who delivered you from the hand of Saul. I also gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your care, and I gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if that had been too little, I would have added to you many more things like these. Why have you despised the word of the Lord by doing evil in his sight? And then in verse 9, Nathan presents a clear statement of the sin, a clear definition of it. You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword, have taken his wife to be your wife, and have killed him with the sword of the sons of Ammon. And then the judgment is pronounced in verses 10 to 14. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, behold, I will raise up evil against you from your own household. I will even take your wives from before your eyes and give them to your companion, and he shall lie with your wives in broad daylight. Indeed, you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and under the sun. And David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord also has taken away your sin. You shall not die. However, because by this deed you have given occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme, the child also that is born to you shall surely die. Is that a great picture of what it can be like? Going to someone, Nathan didn't even specifically bring it up. He told him a story. It's possible to do that. Maybe you don't have to even bring it up. It might be a little more gentle that way. He brings up a story. David convicts himself. Boom. A clear definition of the sin. He pronounces the judgment. David repents, but there's still consequence. Number nine. The attitude is as important as the action. The attitude is as important as the action. In fact, you know what? It might be more important Because if the attitude is not right, you've probably just blown the action. Many places in the Bible it tells us what our attitude should be when we go to someone for the purpose of exhortation. 1 John 4.18, our attitude should be love. Galatians 6.1, which we've looked at several times, humility and gentleness. Matthew 18, verses 18 to 20, prayer. Go with an attitude of prayer. Luke 17.3, an attitude of forgiveness. The attitude is as important as the action. Number 10, the sooner the sin is confronted, the better, as it prevents the sin from continuing. James chapter 5, if you don't know this passage, turn there, you've got to see it. The sooner the sin is confronted, the better, as it prevents the sin from continuing. James says says this at the very end of his book. His book is filled with exhortations and encouragements to the Christians he's writing to. And at the very end of his book, he includes this as an ending note. My brethren, if any among you strays from the truth and one turns him back through exhortation, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the air of his way will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. If you stop it here, it doesn't need to get to here. 
Don't wait. Don't think someone else will do it. In the drowning incident, what if I felt that uh, it would have given the child a better self-image if he could have pulled it out and saved himself? Well, he spit the water out of his lungs and come on, he would have felt better the rest of his life. Well, he wouldn't have had to say that someone came and saved him. What would have happened then? Confront it when you see it. Don't wait. Number 11. If someone comes to you about sin in another's life, they should be directed to confront the sinning brother. This is probably the most sticky of all 15 of the principles. If someone comes to you about sin in another's life, they should be directed to confront the sinning brother. This is assuming that you haven't seen that sin and someone is coming to you with a rumor or with what could be considered gossip at this point. Matthew 18, 15 is clear. If your brother sins, go. Implied you go and reprove him. And what are the last two words? In private. It doesn't say if your brother sins, go and tell as many people as you can or go tell the person that's in authority over him because he has more say in his life than you do or go tell his friends or go tell the person that's discipling him, go tell his parents, go tell the administrator, go tell the RA, does it? It says you go and reprove him in private. Remember to keep that person accountable though. This is where it often falls through and the ball is dropped when we come and Someone comes to us and says, and we turn them to that person so that they should be the ones doing it, but the ball is dropped. Remember to keep that person accountable and say, you need to go, but I'm going to ask you if you went to see them because they might drop the ball because they might not think they can handle it. What about 1 Corinthians 5.1? Interesting verse there as Paul writes to Corinthians because Paul wasn't with them at this time when he wrote the letter, obviously. Beginning in chapter 5, he says, it is actually reported, it was reported to Paul that there is immorality among you, an immorality of such a kind that does not even exist among the Gentiles. It was reported to Paul. He wasn't there. He didn't see it firsthand. What do you do with that? It is not wrong to exhort on the basis of someone else's report. If, note the if, the sin is common knowledge and you are not aware of the people who have seen the sin. Paul was the shepherd. He was their spiritual shepherd in a sense and he cared about them. He loved them. And he knew this, their sin was so rampant, it was common knowledge. He exhorted them on the basis of someone else's report. The ideal is to find the person who knows of that sin. If that person comes to you and has seen it firsthand, send it to them. But if not, it is not wrong to confront on the basis of someone else's report. Note some guidelines, though, if this is the case and, this, and you do run into the situation. What to do if, if, a, if there's a rumor about sin, that if that sin is true, it should be confronted. Stop the gossip at you. Important. Stop the gossip at you. Secondly, approach the person with an attitude of humility. Because we talked about the attitude. Number three, ask questions. Don't come and say, I know this sin's in your life. Come with that attitude and ask some questions. Maybe present a story like Nathan did to David. There's other options. Ask questions. and well, You might even want to write them down before you go so you don't say anything that you didn't plan to say. Number four, be willing to support that person and keep them accountable. Be willing to support them especially if they repent from their sin, that you can be there and strengthen them. It's a sticky issue. Number 12, you are to confront sin that not only affects you directly, but indirectly. It kind of goes hand in hand with number 11. You are to confront sin that not only affects you directly, but indirectly. Why? Any sin in the church affects all of us, doesn't it? In one way or another, any sin in the church affects all of us. Taking on yourself the responsibility for the personal purity of your brethren here and the person that's in your dorm and especially the person you room with. 
Jesus confronted the Pharisees was on all sin directly against him. Think about it this way. If only direct sin were confronted, who would confront a Christian who was sinning against a non-Christian? There'd be no one to confront that person. It doesn't mean we all go around playing cops. It means out of our love, we're concerned about those people and go to them with the right attitude. I'll never forget being in Mount Zion Missionary Baptist Church down in downtown L.A. And it's an all-black church. It's not really the funnest experience I've ever experienced. And uh, about six months ago, we went down there as my wife and myself and Scott Ardivanis was along also. And as we sat there in the church, the service was like three hours long. And at the end of the service, I'll never forget, the guy who was leading the service stood up. And as he was about to close the service, he looked over the congregation and he scanned it like this and he looked and he picked someone out. It was funny because it was, it was a guy sitting right in front of us. So, you know, he was looking right in front of us and he goes, you, you there, stand up, stand up right there. And you see the guy, you know, go down in his seat as he's looking right at him and the whole church, you know, every eye and head turns to see who is this he's talking about. He goes, why don't I recognize you? Have you not been in our fellowship? Have you not been around lately? And we're just going to Scott and I look at each other like, what is going on? It's amazing. I'd never seen anything like that. Actual exhortation, confrontation in front of the whole body. Are you glad we don't do that? Are you glad that doesn't happen in chapel? Think about it. Think about it for a second. Number 13. When it comes to affecting others with false doctrine, the Bible is very clear about the form of confrontation. Very clear. Quickly, let me read you Titus chapter 1, verses 10 to 13. For there are many rebellious men, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision, who must be silenced because they are upsetting whole families, teaching things that they should not teach for the sake of sordid gain. One of themselves, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. For this cause, catch it, reprove them severely, severely, that they may be sound in faith. And verse 16 says, they profess to know God, but by their deeds they deny him being detestable and disobedient and worthless for any good need. When it comes to false doctrine, the exhortation is severe. Number 14, no one is too great or godly to be confronted. As we saw in Samuel, David was the king of the nation. He was confronted. In Galatians chapter 2, verse 11 and following, Peter was confronted by Paul. Paul comes along and confronts him because he'd cut himself off from the assembly of God's people because he had feared some of the legalistic Jews. So Paul comes and confronts the apostle Peter. Wow. In 1 Timothy, we read about one of the most frightful things to me. 1 Timothy 5, verse 20, verse 19. Do not receive an accusation against an elder except on the basis of two or three witnesses. Those who continue in sin rebuke in the presence of all so that the rest also may be fearful of sinning. Exhortation of an elder is a fearful thing, but no one is too great or too godly to be confronted. Number 15. If a believer does not respond to exhortation, follow the steps of Matthew 18, verses 15 to 17. If you're not familiar with church discipline and the process of that, write those verses down, Matthew 18, 15 to 17. Basically, the first step is private confrontation, the second step in verse 16 is plural confrontation. Take one or two more with you. Verse 17, elder confrontation. Take it to the church. And if he still does not repent, put him out of the church and treat him as a Pharisee and a tax gatherer. Don't associate with sinning believers if they will not repent. 1 Corinthians 5, 9 to 11 and 2 Thessalonians 3, 6 also support that idea that we are not to associate with sinning believers. 
You know what? All of that in Matthew 18 is to keep exhortation in its early stages so that the final step doesn't have to be taken. If every one of us took on ourselves the responsibility to go to that person instead of let the process go, it would nip it in the bud and we could take care of it in its early steps and it wouldn't have to go that far. You know, we can only fulfill our responsibility. We can't make a person repent, can we? When we have done our job, it moves into the realm of divine discipline, a sin unto death, which some of you have heard. Acts 5, 1 Corinthians 11, 1 John 5, where God actually will kill someone who is a believer in living in sin because they're no good to us. They're no good to the church. Or satanic oppression, 1 Timothy 1.20, where Hymenaeus and Alexander were delivered over to Satan. What if a person being exhorted lies? Look at Proverbs 6, 16 to 19. says that God hates those who lie. God hates feet that run to evil. If you're continuing in sin, God hates your lies and God is directing his hate and his wrath toward you. This is why we all need to be committed to the ministry of exhortation. Confrontation is one of the most difficult things we will ever do. Don't forget that. Paul said... For out of much affliction and anguish of heart, I wrote to you with many tears to the Corinthians. And in Acts, he says, night and day for a period of three years, I did not cease to admonish each one with tears. It's a way to be used greatly by God in the life of another believer. Confronting sin in the body affects all of us and helps maintain the purity God desires. That gives God great glory. Let me give you a paraphrase of what a Puritan writer said. Someone is not a friend who, knowing about something that has you and your family in great danger, conceals it. If a thief was lurking in your house or a murderer waiting to kill you, or if your house was on fire, a friend would tell you. There is no such thief, no such murderer or destructive force as sin. To not say anything is treachery. He is the most faithful friend and worthy of most esteem and affection that deals most plainly with us in reference to the discovery of our sin. Think about it this way. If a believer knows that they have a friend who will confront them when they're in sin, they will be much more likely to avoid that sin at all costs, won't they? If your friends know, you will ask them about it when you see sin in their lives. It'll prevent it. Accountability among yourselves is so important. Bow your heads with me. I'd like you just to think of one person in your life, in your realm of contact, maybe in your dorm, maybe at church, a person that you know is not living the life that they need to. I want you to commit yourself to pray for them and that if you know you need to talk to them about some specific issues, that you would do that. And also pray that God would be able to use you in this ministry of exhortation. Commit yourself to it. It is a biblical principle. It's a biblical thing. So important. God will never be able to bless this college like he could unless all of us are committed to that. This is an excellent college. It has so much potential. But if we don't deal with the sin and pursue purity, God will never be able to use it. God, thanks for your love and the good things in the Christian life that we can have so much joy. God, help us through the hard times and give us the strength when we need to do those things that are so important and yet so difficult. God, give us love for our brethren and humility. For all these things in Jesus' name, amen. You're dismissed.